Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview series where I get to sit down with the best, brightest, most notable names and minds of the games industry. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Gearbox CEO and co-founder Randy Pitchford this month. Hey, Randy. How's it going? It's going well. Appreciate you uh, making time to come on in. I was excited to to be here until I just heard your introduction. I'm not sure I live up to that. But. <laughs> well, that's you have a heck of a story, though. Okay. I was telling you before we went on camera. Normally, I end up with a, about 20 questions or so, makes it for about an hour conversation. But no, your career, it's like 30. I've got like 35 questions ready to go because you've done a lot. I, I, I like making stuff. I feel like I, I, I think I mentioned this to you. I, I feel like I'm just figuring it out though. I feel like I'm just at the beginning and uh, it's, just, it's weird to look back and realize, oh yeah, there's, there's been some stuff we've done. So, so this, is, this is only phase one of, your, of the we'll Randy see. Pitchford Cinematic we'll see. Universe. I mean, how, how, you know, <laughs> I might well, get clipped as I leave the building today. We'll see what Hopefully happens. not. <laughs> uh, but let's start, I wanted to start with, uh, just I like to go all the way back to childhood and try and establish some oh, building crap. blocks okay. here. Uh, you know, what were your, some of your favorite games as a kid? Man, well, let's see. Uh, I think the first thing I remember that you could call a video game, um, my my father flew me to Los Angeles from uh, where we lived in in Maryland, in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and uh, my parents were getting a divorce. They were separated, and you know, I was I don't I was five years old. I don't even remember it really, but I do remember that to placate me, he bought me this device. And it was one of those early kind of electronic handheld games. And I know the, the kind you're talking the, yeah, about. Yeah, the theme, the theme of the game was racing. It was like drag race or something. Right. And it, the, 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 the display was a series of LEDs. There were like three red LEDs, then a green LED. And then there was a little um, timer, like an old school LED watch right. timer that would just had, had it could do two, two digits. And the interface was a, a switch, and it would go up or down. And so what you do is you'd start with it up, and the red light would go to the green, and when it hit the green, you had to switch it down, like shifting gears. Yeah. And the timer would start to count like what your reaction time was. <laughs> and so the goal was to shift. You, if you shift before it turned green, you'd like it break and stop. Yeah. So you had to wait till it to get to green, then you had to switch, and and it was a reaction time skill test. And there, there were four gears, and then the race was over, and that that was it. And as simple as that was, like that was the most amazing thing I'd ever experienced up to my you know short life up to that point. But it was this machine that was a game and a toy and like I still remember it to this day and and I went to um I was working with the guys uh that that they founded the National Video Game Museum in uh Frisco near near where our headquarters are Mm -hmm. uh, outside of Dallas Texas and um uh the National Video Game Museum guys have like this incredible collection of like every handheld electronic game ever made and I couldn't find the thing in my memory but I found something that was very close and I realized my memory rewrote the experience you know because we don't it does that. Our, our memories aren't perfect <laughs> That's right true. so yeah so that was probably the first video game I ever played and uh my father uh he was a super nerd um uh when the earliest memories I have he worked uh for Xerox in in Maryland 
and they had like these giant supercomputers that he would build like the Sigma 7 or something and uh, before that I'd learned later in life that he was uh, he was a spy. He was, or wow. but he wasn't like the James Bond kind. He was like the the Q kind that would make the gadgets and stuff. Yeah. And he worked for military intelligence and stuff. And then we moved out to California, and he did all kinds of stuff. He he was literally a rocket scientist with doing telemetry on Minuteman missiles, and he was a Disney Imagineer for a while, and all kinds of just so electronic know. games were clearly a thing that was, if not encouraged, at least. Tolerate. Oh, it was sure. it was not merely encouraged; it was fueled. Like uh, we always had uh, the first computer that I had, my dad built. And when I say built, he didn't assemble it out of parts. Like, like the the keyboard we had was this. The the, the ends of the keyboard were wood blocks that he that he that he uh, lathed. Uh, in his workshop, there was this piece of metal that he had somehow bent and wrapped. He'd cut the shape out of it. The the keys on the keyboard were, he bought them from some sorcerer. They were bought as individual things where he hand-painted the, the wow. letters and <laughs> did his own circuit board and switches for the keys. He wrote his own BIOS. Yeah. Like every, literally built a like PC. Like literally built the, the computer. <laughs> and that was the first PC that I I remember using as a as something with a keyboard on it, and I, I learned what an operating system was, and then uh, from there upgraded uh, to to a CPM based computer that he that he built for me, and I, I learned, you know, CPM is like a predecessor, it's like primordial DOS, <laughs> which is you know primordial Windows, uh, except it's not Windows at all; it's just an early operating system, and and anyway, yeah, that was that was my growing up with all this junk and and awesomeness, and I had the knack, you know, my brother and I, uh, we we played with stuff in parallel for a while, and then clearly like I I just it stuck with me, and I just yeah. dug in deeper and deeper and deeper as as he started getting interested in other things. So that explains why uh, you wrote a text adventure game when you were around 11 or 12 or so. Oh, I wrote lots of text adventures, most of them unfinished. Do you like, remember the first one? Um, I mean, you know, the, fir- you, the first things that you do in that, I mean, I remember one of the things I, I played with probably early on was um, believing, oh, I'm going to make D&D, right? But, like, I get through the character generation stuff and I'm out of memory right so like that's how like I had like 2k of RAM to work with you know so um, uh, but uh, yeah and all kinds of stuff I remember I I felt like a god I had I was one of the games that influenced me the most was a game called the Colossal Cave Adventure which was a text adventure it was the sort of the uh, shared ancestor to the Zork series right and um, I had gotten a hold of a Scott Adams version that had been written in basic which means you could look at the source code because basic was an interpreted language instead of a compiled language, right? So with an interpreted language, if you can run the game, you can also, you have the source. Yeah. The source is the, 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 the program, um, so which is amazing. So I'm like, I'm, re- I'm discovering how it was programmed and I, I learned what a dimensional array was and I felt like, I, I, I remember I, I, I made this, I, don't, I didn't name it anything, but I, I created a, a dungeon that had four rooms, but they were legit. Like up to that point, I'd many I'd t- room games with tons of dungeons and like like you know fifteen twenty room dungeons uh, that I but I it was all brute force. But this I created with a, a true two by two dimensional array and had the logic that connected them all up and I felt like I am a god. <laughs> I am a god for discovering this. 
Um, so and did, did you always want to, was that the, the, did that seal it for you for wanting to make games when you grew I up? I don't know what sealed it for me. Or, or did you, did you have another thing you wanted to be when you grew up at any point? I'm, I've always, I have a lot of things that I, 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 I love entertainment. So like, we'll get to the magic stuff. Yeah. But course, not sir. just that, like just in school in elementary school and in middle school and in high school, like I was always in theater and always, you know, doing speech and debate and stuff and just, um, I, they, they, in high school, I had to choose. Uh, I, they, you know, they do the where they have all the kids vote on what kids are going to be what in the yearbook, you know. And, and yeah. that, my my options, and they decided you're, you're only given one each. But I had I had the most votes in two categories. Which one do you want? And and they and it was uh, class clown and most spirited. <laughs> and so they made me flip the coin on that one. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was always like I was always that guy. Um, but uh, and I think. It, it, computers were another path for that. Like I'd write little programs, and my dad had a bulletin board, and I would upload them to the bulletin nice. board. BBS. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like I remember when he got the Wildcat BBS system, and I was like, "Holy crap! Like this is so advanced." <laughs> like if you look that up, if you don't know what that is, it's just it's 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 so primitive compared to today's standards. But so um, your dad was clearly very supportive of your oh, yeah. of your programming and 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 video and your know, computer creative efforts in in our house where we lived, we had this, um, there was like this separate little building that was like a shed in the back of the property. And uh, he'd converted it in this like nerd man cave. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had a lock and, and he had all his computers in there and like he had the best gear. I mean, and all of his like, you know, uh, electrical engineering equipment, like that's where I learned to solder, you know. <laughs> and and uh, uh, and I used to, I figured out how to break into the to the room and I, after school I'd go in there and I'd just mess around with all this stuff for a few hours before he came home from work. And because uh, at the time he was working at Vandenberg Air Force Base um, uh, doing missile stuff. Um, in fact, I think we just, didn't we just launch a new nuke missile test without the nuke in it? Uh, like I don't two, know. two days sure. after we learned about North Korea, <laughs> North Korea we, learned, we launched another uh, Minuteman out of Vandenberg um, just to make sure we can still fire those bad boys off. <laughs> Shit's getting real. All right, let's. We may as well talk about it now because we might not be here now. Well, it's, hopefully um, this episode will air at some point. Um, but yeah, so so I, I figured out how to break in there, and I knew he knew it, but he didn't. He just let it go. That was when that's I, great. That's when I knew he was behind the like me having the knack. So like, where does where does the uh, penchant for magic come from? And I'm not talking about Magic the Gathering. You are an actual. Oh, the, you are a practicing yeah. magician. Yeah, I I don't know. I it's. Entertainment's awesome. Like, but, so my wife has a, a, a theory. She she's um, uh, she's got a degree in psychology and neuroscience, and she's like she's all that world. Uh, I, I I'm not that world, but she she told me about this um, this experiment you can do. You can hook someone up to an fMRI. Do you know what an fMRI? I is? do not. Okay. Do you know what an MRI is? Absolutely. It takes a picture of a brain. Yes. So an fMRI is a functional MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, and functional means it happens in real time. So you hook a bunch of electrodes up to uh, a person, so you can see and you can look at the brain in left real brain, time right brain activity, that on kind of the thing. computer, and you can see what's lighting up as you're stimulating a person or interacting with them. You can see what part of the brain's lighting up, right? So, so you hook someone up to an fMRI, and then you make them feel something, like make them laugh yeah. or prick their finger with a pin, make them feel pain. So when they laugh, a certain part of their brain lights up. And when they feel pain, a different part of their brain lights up, right? And then you have the same person, they're still hooked up, and have them watch someone else laugh or have huh. them watch someone else get their 
finger pricked with a pin. And when they watch someone else laugh, the same part of their brain lights up. And when they watch someone, you know, get hurt, the same part, the pain part lights yeah. up. And it, that's what empathy is, basically. The same, we, we, we have the same experiences when we see other people have them. But we're not all calibrated the same way. Some of us are broken. And um, like a sociopath, for example, when they see someone else feel pain, they don't have it in themselves. They, and sometimes it's miswired and they feel happiness instead of pain when they, when they you know, hmm. like a, a, a sociopath who's also a sadist is like the worst case scenario, right? Um, but but this, is, you know, this is all biologically possible and there's probably evolutionary reasons why some of us are wired wrong. So my wife's hypothesis with me is um, I'm like the opposite of that where I actually get more of a feeling when other people are having a good time than even when I'm having it myself. Because yeah. like everything, whenever I consume something great, like uh, what doesn't matter what it is. Like my immediate thought is like, Oh, let's give that to somebody else. Let's go do it to somebody else. Let's, let's take that and try it and maybe make it better. Or, you know, let's tweak it. And then we can give someone else the experience and feel what that's like. And I think that's been a, uh, I think that's been there all along and magic is incredible for that. Like what a drug. Like when, when you, did you pick it up, when you fry somebody's brain with something <laughs> like, and they react and you just, uh, and it's just like, there's nothing like that in the world. It's real time. It's instantaneous. You know, exactly how you don't have to, you know, work on a game for four years and then wait, right. you know, <laughs> after certain and see the, you know, see the reviews and like, yeah. and you're like, it's all so gone by the time you even understand what the, this is like instant, you know, whether you did it or not, like in the moment. So it's, it's really strong in that regard. Um, but like, I, you know, I, I had a magic set when I was a kid, um, and that was, you know, probably the beginning. Uh, and there's probably a reason why I was given the magic set. Um, I don't really remember, but exactly the moment it all started. But I, my, my mom saved my magic set that that I had when I was a kid. Oh, that's cool. It was pristine. I had everything in the right plot. There's like only like one broken yeah, thing and one missing thing. I did. I really took good care of it. But there was um, the manual was falling apart. Like the pages were <laughs> like it was a mess. But I, it was all together. But like the pages would literally come out because they'd become unglued from the binding. And, uh, and, and there was a, a, a piece of paper that I'd made a sign on that was in there. And, the, and it was the saddest thing. And this might also explain. <laughs> and I could laugh about it today okay. because I don't even remember this thing. But when I saw it later, I'm like, oh my God. The sign said, out of business, Nobody would pay attention. Oh. And then in parentheses said, or my fee. And I don't know what that was like. <laughs> I had to make a joke about it. But like, I knew like, that, that was a thing too. Like, um, getting my parents' attention was one of the most impossible things in the world when I was a kid. Hmm. And it was probably because I was a stupid kid. And I'm completely uninterested or uninteresting to an adult sophisticated mind. And they just had to you know, let me mature and turn into something else, I guess. I don't know. Let's make sure he's fed. Make sure he's, you know, not cold at night. <laughs> well, that, that's not, that's. Uh... But they gave me plenty of things to play with. And yeah, so you made you made your own. <laughs> I know it sounds so sad. Way. It's like, oh, but I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm not messed up. At least I, I think I'm okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm messed up. <laughs> we're all. I think we're, we could all be in a psychiatrist's office for some. Sure. I, I think I I we're. Sure hey, wait. Are we human? Let me check. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think. <laughs> so let's fast forward. How uh, things progress? Uh, how do you end up landing? Uh, your first professional role in the games industry, uh, 3D Realms. Yeah. Where does how does that come along? Uh, so let's see. I was gonna. I was going to UCLA and I was performing magic um, in Hollywood, and I. The first thing that happened was, and I was with 
my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, but we were in this kind of pseudo marriage relationship, you know, where you're basically cohabitating yeah. and you're, you're existing as a couple. You just haven't actually, you know, done any ceremony or anything. Um, and uh, I was, I thought like it, before that moment, it's like, I'm on this path where I'm going to be a lawyer. Huh. Right? Like I'm that, going to That doesn't fit I'm, with anything you just spent know, the last fifteen I know, minutes telling me. I know, right? <laughs> it's totally different reasons for that. But um and what she helped me kind of figure out was that like I was I was just sort of genetically made for entertainment. Like there was something about me there. And so as I as I realized that she was right and started to accept that reality and realize that I'd just, you know, been wasting a lot of time and I'd been, you know, doing this thing that I thought I was supposed to do instead of the thing that that I should be doing, um, I, I, I I dove into it and thought, okay, what what is this? And at the time, I thought I'm going to have to become a professional magician because it never occurred to me in a million years that you could actually get paid to make video games. Yeah, like that was no path. It's to funny a that you thought making a living as a professional magician was more viable. I know. Well, not at the to time, disregard. At the time, <laughs> I didn't know it at the but... time. I was like, I was young. I had braces on my teeth. I was the luckiest young magician on the planet. The, there was this place, there's this place in LA called Universal City Walk at Universal Studios. Sure, yeah. um, and they had literally just built it. I was working as a tour guide at Universal Studios <laughs> and the City Walk was just opening. I think you'd have been good at that job. Oh, it was you, a lot I bet of you fun. were good. I love being a tour guide. That was the best job. Like that on the like, earthquake all of it, thing, all of it. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I was doing the earthquake when the earthquake in Northridge oh, happened. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't on it, but I was working that <laughs> yeah. that circuit when the earthquake happened. It was like, okay, and like they got us therapy. Like I'm like, I'm fine. It's fine. Like like the, the corporation was all concerned about you know all the employees that have to ride the earthquake ride every day. They were <laughs> proactive times a day. Yeah, they were really concerned. But it was it was nothing. But anyway, yeah. So I was doing that. CityWalk was this big thing. They're opening, and then uh, and then one of the one of the businesses on the Universal City Walk was this nightclub that had a dinner theater and a bar and a gift shop, and it was called Wizards, and it was a magic nightclub. I'm like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. So I, I you know, they're, they're they're building it out, and I just walked in one day after after my my shift. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, when are you guys opening? And do you need any help? And I talked to the guy that uh, that was running the place. I didn't know at the time. His name's Fred Wood, great magician. Uh, he's been around. He knows the shit. And uh, and he asked me what what I knew and what I could do. And I showed him a couple of things. He's like, "You're hired." <laughs> That's cool. And I got a job on the on the pretty much on the spot to uh, to to be one of the to magicians that open this new magic club and I, I it was a like magicians don't have jobs like we we hustle we scrape we get gigs right yeah. we get gigs i had a job like i had a salary i had a i punched in <laughs> like i was a magician that would punch in and i would i would you know stroll in the bar and I, my favorite thing was the the gift shop and working the magic table because it was like a magic shop in universal city walk where there's a thousand tourists a day coming right. in it was the m- most amazing workout ever but i that was that and i was doing well i was making money and i was I had a fixed income from from my my salary but i was also making tips on top nice. and i was kill, like i was averaging about for in, at my age, this is incredible, but I was averaging about 50, 55 grand a year. Um, That's and, really and, impressive. And for a, for a close-up magician in Los Angeles... Like that's hard to do, like for mature close-up magicians, right. you know. And in like what early '90s at yes, this point too, yes, right? This so. is like '91, yeah. right? Like, and it was just or '92, I think. 
Um, and it was, uh, I was just, I did not understand how lucky I was to have scored that. So I thought, oh, this is like the beginning. Magic can go a long way. You know, and I'm like seeing, you know, my, some of my idols like Penn and Teller can killing it for a career long, you know, experience. And, and, and I'm realizing, you know, this is a path, you know, I'm talking to the, the older magicians, this guy that I worked with at the club named Warren Gibson, who's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm saving up money cause you know, making money here and I'm going to open my own club in Maui. And he freaking did it. Like nice. you can go and see Warren and Annabelle's in Maui. And it's one of the greatest magic shows you'll ever see. If you're, if anybody's, you know, in Maui, check it out. I highly recommend it. And, uh, and Warren's awesome. And if you tell him, you know me, you'll, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll take care of you. Um, and, uh, anyway, like that, that just seemed like that's a path and I can, I can figure this out and that's, that'll be a whole career. And, and then I was, I, as I, but, but I never really, I never really thought that was going to be my career until my wife's like, you're going to be an entertainer. So I started really thinking about it as a career. And that's when I realized, oh, I don't, I don't know like to really make a lot of money or to kind of grow it, like I'm gonna to have to figure out how to get famous. Okay, that's weird. I don't know how to get famous. Like, do I, how do we get on TV? Like how do, because you can't just, like the salary was nice, but like that, would, that was gonna play itself out. And I started thinking about like um, more entrepreneurial like thinking, like okay, I'm a close-up magician, so how many people can I get into a room Okay, my, if I do a 15 minute show, how many, how many times can I do that a day? How much can I charge the people? And I'm doing the math on this and it's like, oh, cause I'm a nerd too, right? <laughs> like, so I'm, I've got a spreadsheet, I'm figuring this out and I'm like, oh, close up magic is probably not the best vehicle for, you know, maximizing the, the return for the entertainment time I have to invest. And by the way, the secret of magicians, and this is, I learned, it's true, I knew this, it was uh, Teller who put it in this, this phrase uh, for me that, that provided these words to articulate this, this truth. And the truth is this, and, and this is a paraphrase from something Teller told me. Uh, the, the reason why magicians uh, can do what they do and why they're able to fool people is because no one can actually contemplate how much time they're willing to invest in a stupid thing that no one else in the world would do that put that much time into because whether it's a move or um, a particular nuance in a way something's presented it's it's just an absurd amount of time <laughs> to do it, or, it to get and if you know simple tricks you you know the difference between what you're doing and when you see a professional really fool a lot of people with something and that difference is a, a stupid amount of time and uh, and I, so I'm thinking about the time and the return and, and and how many you know and it's like this isn't this is okay this isn't going to be there's there's a ceiling there <laughs> and what I was jumping away from was this world that I clearly wasn't destined for but had been programmed to consider was what 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 you can maximize as an attorney <laughs> right and like there's a big disparate I believe you it. know the ceiling is completely different um, in, in, this, in this scenario. Uh, and, or the ceiling actually is, it's, it's, the, it's the, the bell curve. Yeah. Right, the middle of the bell curve looks great for, for you know, attorneys and the higher end looks even better. Um, there is like an edge case of magician, but it's like a crazy edge case. You have yeah, to get it, to Copperfield. It's like making the NFL. And Penn and Teller, it's more than that. There's fewer, <laughs> there's few, there are fewer magicians in the world that are at that edge case than there are in a single NFL team. It's, it's, worse, so, than a, yeah, it's worse than making the NFL. It's, you can't count on one hand 
the number of magicians that have reached that peak. Like if you try it right now, you'll you'll say David Blaine, yeah, David Copperfield. Copperfield if depending on how old you are and how douchey you are, <laughs> you, might, teller, you, you might say Chris Angel, <laughs> <laughs> Penn and Teller, and then you start to go. Yeah, and you you really you run into I can I can keep going I know I know a lot of magicians but um, most people they can get some of those four and then they kind of hit a wall um, and that's really interesting right so uh, but here's here's something else that was going on at the same time right I'm still a nerd I'm still programming I'm spending time at home making yeah here things. we go we're we gonna I can't wait to I know is that like three D realms we've the, been on a yeah. walk right now here, here's here's the problem <laughs> with me. <laughs> This is the problem with me. You'll, you'll learn. I'm going to have to rein you in in yes, the next yeah, hour, yeah. aren't I? That's, that's okay. Uh, that's you, fine. Yeah, that's my so, job. So I'm, I'll get there more. Get, <laughs> so, so, so at the same time, I'm on uh, CompuServe and on AOL, and I'm writing programs. And some of them are little tools that I've made for myself. And I'm like, oh, I'll just upload it. And, yeah. Um, and I made this one tool that was, um, I can't remember what it was, because um, I, I made a bunch of tools. But there was one thing I wrote that I uploaded. And I, and I don't want to reference the wrong one because it, I had uploaded a whole bunch of stuff. But one of them I uploaded, and, and then I, the next day I checked it, and it was downloaded like 2,000 times. And that, you know, when we think about video games today at the scale, 2,000 doesn't seem like a big number. But when I, like what happened that morning, like it was literally from like, a, like 11 p.m. the night before to like you know, maybe 10 a.m. the next morning. Yeah. And 2,000 downloads, and I thought... That's insane. That's more people than I performed magic for in the last two months. Right. And it just kind of flipped a little bit. And so I started thinking about, can video games be a career? Like, I don't know how good I am, but I know when I switched from like taking classes towards law at UCLA to taking a computer science class, like the computer science class, I felt like, I'm running circles around these people. Like I, they, they're not teaching me anything. I'm already so far ahead of where they are, and that's just the nature of how fast technology moves. And the fact, you know, the folks doing yeah. it themselves sometimes get ahead of academia, it's starting to catch up. But um, uh, so then I started. Okay, let's see what that's like. So I started looking around, and I discovered that video games, professional like commercial video games, did not come from where I thought they came from. Like I thought there was a chocolate factory, or a river, and Oompa Loompas, <laughs> and just some magic happened. Cause like my stuff was very primitive. It actually wasn't primitive, but I didn't have all the components, right? I, I'm just one guy doing the things I knew how to do. And what I, what I discovered is there's places where different people that have different skills can come together and put their capabilities together and have a th and that's how the thing that we see when we play games uh, comes out as, and uh, and so I, I I just went for it and I started sending demos and and uh, resumes to every every video game company I could find, and uh, and when I got Scott Miller called you. I, I got uh, it was. Um, Steve Blackburn, who was the COO of 3D Realms, gotcha. but I got I got hits from everybody. That in that period in the early '90s, there was so much more demand than there was supply. It was a, it was a boom town. If back you could then. do anything, you were like raw meat to a <laughs> pack of rabid dogs. So I was just like I, I couldn't believe it. I was like I I, I uh, had to, I was spending in a, like all of my time suddenly went to just answering and responding. Uh, to to folks that were you know interested in talking to me about the potential of me working for them, and um, in that experience, I narrowed it down to two choices of people that were saying, "I want to offer you a job," and one of them was uh, 
3D Realms was Apogee. Um, yep. And I liked that as a choice because I loved Wolfenstein and the id guys. They were huge and, at the time yeah, as well. Yeah, they, they 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 and they were going somewhere. And I also knew, wow, I could actually help these guys. Like, I wouldn't be just learning. I could actually contribute and make them go faster and better. Um, and I could already see it just, just looking at the... And, and I'd gotten... Um, I'd actually... Uh, uh, became a beta tester for them and, hmm. uh, and learned more about how, what they're up. But then, then uh, at the same time, uh, one of the other offers that I really liked was from LucasArts. Uh, they wanted to start making a first-person shooter um, in the Star Wars universe. Dark Forces. Star, yeah, yeah. yeah, it became Dark Forces. And I, and I love Star Wars. So, um, uh, so, but I, I ultimately chose Apogee, not because I wanted to move to Texas, um, but because they offered me a share of the profit and a, a piece of the pie. And there's your there's your spreadsheet in your head. Yes, it's yes. Like alarm like bells going all off. Fit right. And meanwhile, yeah. Lucas, like the people I was talking to there, it was really weird because I like it had to go through all these layers before I could even talk to someone that was an actual person, like the HR and like it was very you know kind of corporate-y. Yeah. Uh, at least it felt like that at the time. And then um, their attitude to me was like, you know, you should be paying us. You get to work on Star Wars. You know, it was like that. They weren't really. It was weird. You know, um, but it was Lucas Star sure. Wars. So I was, I mean, I almost went it. I almost did it. Uh, I wonder what my life would have been yeah, like. Yeah, so there's an alternate universe yeah. Where, yeah. where that's the route you went. Yeah. All right, so we're like 20-something minutes in or whatever, been... and, and I'm on like question four. So oh, shit. I'm going to okay. turbo ahead with you. Yeah, just, um, you know, and cut so me off. 3D Realms, uh, Duke Nukem 3D, huge hit. You're a level designer. Uh, I, I'm curious, was the, was the rivalry with id Software a real thing, or was that just a fan thing? Because I was a, a player, I was playing uh, Duke and Doom and Quake and everything back then, and that was you know you heard about that out. But was that was that a, was that an internal well, thing too, or was I that can, just? I can only talk about my myself. Yeah, um, I didn't have it. Like I, Tom Hall worked at Apogee, like, and he and I became fast friends. Yeah, actually, we became friends even before I took the job. Uh, and I love, I, to this day, he's one of my favorite people on the planet. I love Tom Hall. And we don't get to spend as much time together um, because he doesn't live in the same city anymore. But when I do, I just feel like, oh, like, I just love the guy. He's so great. And, uh, and I, love, I love John Romero. And like, I never felt any rivalry. Um, I think um, it was probably tricky for George and Scott to know that they discovered, discovered, they, you know, recruited these guys and brought them to Texas and did help them a lot. And, yeah. you know, but also, you know, couldn't figure out how to be equitable enough with them where they wanted to be partners forever. And so after just Wolfenstein, the id guys separated, you know, and, uh, and went their own way and achieved even higher success with Doom and with Quake and so on. And I think that was really difficult. Um, I, f I felt I, I don't want to speak for them, but I felt sure. it felt like it was difficult for them, and I think that might have been if there was anything that could be considered rivalry, it was probably that. And and I think it, that might be true because I know that some of the people that were at Three Realms after I had left, and then after, later when I started Gearbox and we started becoming uh, successful, that they had later reported some of the sense the same thing about about me <laughs> so that that was weird you know um but I, I i don't know i was always kind of proud that those guys you know were part of apogee yeah. and uh, i thought that was cool so uh would would we immediately recognize any of your stuff from um, from duke i don't know i mean maybe the the uh 
most of my work is in the fourth episode, which was part of the Atomic Edition. Right. And um, the Atomic Edition, um, I did the first uh, mission, I did the secret mission, I did the boss mission, and then I did an assist on a couple others. Nice. Um, so I did the, the first and last and the, and the secret level. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, it, we're, the team was so small, everybody's kind of involved. In, in the main game, you know, I, I was mostly, um, I was a beta tester with them when the, when the first, uh, the, like to the shareware launch. And uh, one of the things I felt like kind of proud and kind of shitty at the same time, there's this bug in the build engine we called the save twice bug. And, uh, and I'm going to go off a tangent. You can cut me off. <laughs> but the way it works is um, there's certain there's certain things you can do where you can place say entities in in, in your in your build using the tools, and um, and the entities the, the the software would would number them. Okay. And it would number them from the first to last. So one of the things this was useful for was the spawn points in the deathmatch map. So you'd just say spawn point, spawn point, spawn point, spawn. And under the hood, it would say, okay, that's one, that's two, that's yeah. three, that's four, that's five. And when you save it, that's one, that's two, that's front to back. But it would save front to back and it'd create, and it'd save it off. And when it, when it did that, so like this is the first one to go here. Duh, duh, duh. So then when you loaded it back in again, it would load it in reverse. Oh. So now when you saved it again, one was eight two was seven and it would reverse it. So if you play, if you play the game a lot and you care about being competitive, which at the time I did, like I was, I was competing in doom and, and quake and those games and Duke Nukem. And, uh, and the idea of, of, of in one, uh, compile the, and it's not really a compile, it's just saving the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first spawn point would suddenly be the last spawn point. Like that <laughs> changes the off. entire yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Of the, like, um, you know, imagine like this is where player one starts, that's where player two starts, and, you know, and suddenly like you play a game and you're completely different spots. That's not huh. good. That's not, every patch, it was like a crapshoot. And I'm like, <laughs> guys, we have, to, this, we have to, so we created a new process. Uh, in whatever I guess you could call QA, there was no QA. Yeah, no. we were our own QA back then. It's like frankly. what twelve year? Probably, yeah, something yeah. Like that. And um, and uh, and we created a process where um, we would check and make sure that we save the map and play it. And if it was the reverse order, okay, that's not the one. Delete that. Save it again. Huh. And then do it. And we call that the save twice bug. Nice. <laughs> All right, we'll come back to Duke Nukem. Okay. Um, so you ended up leaving, and you started a studio called Rebel Boat Rocker. Well, I, I joined it. Joined it. Okay, yeah. my apologies. Yeah, no, there was these guys, um, the Zell Snack Brothers, Billy and Jason, and they were working at 3D Realms, and they were really smart. And, and Billy was a genius. And um, before coming to 3D Realms, he had worked at, with Epic. And this was before Epic started getting into 3D stuff. Yeah, Jazz Jackrabbit kind of days. Yeah, and Billy was a, one of the pioneers of 3D graphics. If you go back to like or real real time 3D graphics, um, if you go back to like the Michael Abrash books, like the the early ones, they would reference like these these sharp. Here's here's this new idea from this this kid, you know, John Carmack. Da da da. Here's this other idea from this kid, Billy Zelznak. Like they're <laughs> they're mentioned in that way. And in fact, if you look at the the credits for Quake, Billy's uh, included in the credits oh. because he uh, created the solution that John Carmack ultimately adapted for the dynamic lighting in Quake. Interesting. For he was a genius and he solved problems in unique ways that other people weren't thinking about to get around the fact that computers weren't fast enough for what we, we wished them to do. And that, that was really what it all came down to. We, we could see and imagine 3D graphics 
um, in, our, in our minds is what we were ready for in the industry and as creators, but the computing power just wasn't there. Yeah. So we basically had to cheat. And everybody was coming up with all these clever ways to cheat in software rasterization to, to get around the fact. OpenGL and all that kind of stuff. Um, pre, before that. Before that. <laughs> like this was, this was before 3D hardware. <laughs> we did not have hardware to help us. We were, we were writing onto the, you know, just the CPU yeah. and making the graphics happen in software. And it was, uh, and, and the, you know, the computers weren't that fast. So we had to be clever. And, um, and these guys were the cleverest and Billy was super clever. So he left uh, 3D Realms. Um, and you know, at the time I thought, wow, this fucker's a genius. And I, I like just spending little bits of time. I learned a lot, like so fast, uh, that, that helped me. And, uh, but also, um, he was, he was a real critical thinker to almost to a fault where everything that was wrong with, with Apogee and 3D realms and management and process, like he could see, and he was not afraid to tell everybody around him about it. So I'm like, wow, this guy's really smart, right? Not only is he a genius programmer, but he sees like all, the, all these things wrong with all these human systems, right? So, so he left, uh, well, he didn't leave, he got fired. Uh, and Scott called him a rebel and called him a boat rocker. <laughs> well, there you go. So then he named his new company Rebel Boat Rocker. And I'm like, that guy knows what's up, I'm gonna join him. So you join him. Yeah, so. And the um, game that you guys were making was called Prax War, which right. was a first person shooter. Yeah. And I remember, this is my memory of it, uh, you're talking about how our memory can change things, but yeah. I just remember that being this really cool-looking first-person shooter. So uh, what I want to know is obviously the game never came out. Yeah. The company that never shipped anything. Yeah. So what what was the sort of elevator pitch version of the game? How far did it get, and, and what happened to it? The elevator pitch was, hey, um, we can do polygon soup, right? You're stuck in either 2.5D or with these... Uh, kind of primitive based building like you have in Quake where you, you have to create these brushes and you have these very uh, and that's that's what you're stuck with in, in real time 3D graphics that you can put in a video game context for a first person shooter except for our technology our technology we can just put a, it's just a polygon and we can draw we can draw a triangle any, any way any orientation and we have tools to make to create triangles any orientation we can put any, any material we want on that triangle and we can render it and we can render it fast and it was true it was real and this was this, of course, to this day is how 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 the worlds are handled. Sure. To this day, we just we just put we just feed triangles to the to the GPU, and uh, and the GPU draws them for us. Um, and this was pre-GPU. This is all software, so it was incredible stuff. And uh, so that was the technology pitch. And it's oh, and it's a first-person shooter. And uh, what we can do is we can animate uh, these things. And, um, and so we call them scripted sequences. <laughs> so it was really fun, for example, to hear Duke Nukem talk and feel like I'm in, an, I'm in like a little, like little story happening. There's, there's a story in, a, in the shooter, like what's up? You know, it feels, there's a character. Um, and, uh, and it's fun to see, like people liked watching the cutscene, like when Duke said, I'm gonna rip off your head and shoot down your <laughs> neck. And then like he rips the alien's head off and sits yeah. down and takes out the newspaper and starts whistling as he, <laughs> Presumably proceeds to defecate in the neck of this dead beast, um, and uh, and and so that 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 led us to this realization that it's kind of fun to watch characters do stuff. Um, Mario had just come out on the N sixty four, the 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 Mario game, uh, and we can you know see the character animate and move around, and it was in three D, and it just it, it was this whole revolution. Uh, Tomb Raider uh, had the first Tomb Raider had just come out, and we had a technology that allowed us to not only 
you know, render those triangles, uh, but uh, we could record an animation or create an animation, a keyframed animation, and play it back. Uh, arbitrarily, we called it a scripted sequence. The scripted sequence um, became one of the staple technologies that I think helped Half-Life be Half-Life. Absolutely, um, sure. Doug Wood was also one of our founders at uh, Rebel Boat Rocker, and, and he took that knowledge, he became their, their head animator guy doing that for Valve, back when Valve was small for yeah. Half-Life, and he brought that with him. Um, and that's one of the ways that we got the gig to do Half-Life Opposing Force. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah, that's the next. <laughs> but, but, you know, so we had technology and we had this hunch that first-person shooting's fun, but if we could have a bigger world, an open world, if we can... The pitch was kind of Halo, vehicles, we had <laughs> physics simulation. No, it was. Not, we yeah. had physics simulation. Um, we had a vehicle that basically looked like the Warthog. Um, this was before Halo was announced. Um, and uh, uh, and it, it, what happened was... There was a couple things. Um, Billy was amazing and incredibly smart, but his priority was the renderer, and we did not have sufficient um, energy devoted towards the game simulation. And he was, it was a he, he was resistant to other people being in his code base. Mm. So you know, I I hired a programmer, and he basically ran him out of there, and. And I got another guy, and it was just difficult. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't get enough of the game simulation done. Right. So ultimately, EA, after about eighteen months of development, um, I think like on the third rewrite of the sh uh, the lighting engine, EA is like, dude, ship a game. And so EA pulled the plug; they canceled us. And I don't blame them, frankly. Yeah. I, I think I think they made the wise choice there. And um, in a way, the EA canceling Prax War. Uh, I, I to the right now I should be fucking grateful because that was the catalyst that basically every sing, everybody at Rebel Boat Rocker that wasn't Billy and Jason we started our own company yeah and that's Gearbox and, that's, and we started Gearbox and uh, and yeah you you started with contract work you mentioned so it's, it's the Doug Wood connection you get uh, and there's some other people Chuck Jones is up there and I'd worked with Chuck on uh, Duke Nukem uh, he was a 3D Realms guy that went up to Valve. Um, Brian Martell, one of the founders of Gearbox, uh, worked with Harry Teasley in the past up at, uh, at Microprose, and they, they, Harry Teasley was up at Valve. And so we had a few, few connections there. But really, what we, what, when we founded the company, we said, okay, we're going to do the opposite that we did at Rebel Boat Rocker. Because <laughs> Rebel Boat Rocker, we took every content, risk. Yeah. We, the risk we took was, let's create a new IP, let's create a new engine, let's create a company, <laughs> let's create it all. And, and also a new paradigm in first person, right? Yeah. Um, and so we said, let's take one risk. Let's create a company. Let's use someone else's IP. <laughs> let's use someone else's tools and technology. And let's just create a company. And if we can get our, our processes down, then we'll eventually get to the place where we can do the rest of and, it. And you did, because the, the, the two expansions that you made for Half-Life uh, as the company's first projects were fantastic. I, oh, remember I, played, I played them at the time and loved them. Uh, Opposing Force where you played as one of the, the mercenary, the, yeah. uh, you know, the, the military Soldier. guys. This, and then Blue Shift uh, where you're Barney. You are Barney. <laughs> you're Barney the security guard. So uh, did you guys learn a lot by working in Valve's sandbox? And um, Do you have any kind yeah. of good stories from those? Uh, yeah, from, oh, it from was those? a thrill. I mean, 
the universe that, that Valve created uh, is just wonderful, and it was a lot of fun to spend time in. And it was really, I mean, what was neat about it was the technology was basically Quake. I mean, it was... Yeah, like, I'm, I'm it was gonna, modified. I'm going to use the word Carmackian, you know... Uh, well, it was modified it was Quake, Quake engine it was yeah, Quake. At, its, yeah. at its ultimate yeah, core. It absolutely was Quake, and so architecturally through and through it was Quake, which yeah. we knew inside and out. So that was really easy for us to just jump right in and, 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 and get off with it. And there was the, the additions they made were cool. They were all like game coding kind of additions, which is exactly what you should do. And I was like, oh, man, these guys are how great, you know? And so we had all this fun with the stuff. And we, we'd, we'd gotten lucky. We'd hired some of the people that helped that actually helped um, this guy, uh, his handle Zoner, um, Sean Cavanaugh, who wrote the Zoner's tools, which is what everybody used to compile. Like all of Counter-Strike, for example, was compiled with hmm. Zoner's tools. And uh, Valve started using Zoner's tools themselves for compiling their Half-Life maps. Um, and uh, and, and we, so we'd gotten lucky where we had some of those guys actually on our team. Um, and... Uh, we, it was just it was a lot of fun you know and it was so it was really fun for me because when we shipped the game i think we were 16 people when we shipped opposing force when we started the company we were five you know and so we went from five to 16 in that eight months and it was an eight month development cycle right yeah, that's unheard of now yeah you can't do it now <laughs> but but like i like it's literally like roll up the sleeves and do everything like i i produced the game i directed yeah. the game i i wrote it christy wrote a lot of it too my wife Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, did you do some level design in there I too? did. I did a third of the levels I built myself. Um, the, uh, a huge percentage of the levels I built myself. Um, I have shitty art in there. Um, I'm not a great artist, but you got to do what you got to do. I have sound in there. Um, uh, there's some lines of code in there. Um, it's, but, uh, it was so much fun because every one of us was like that. Everybody on that team, when you're, when you're only that many people, everybody's doing everything. Yeah. Like the whole game is everyone and, uh, and everyone's, you can feel everyone in the game. Um, my wife, uh, uh, was pregnant with my kid. Um, uh, and he was born on January 8th, 2000 and opposing force shipped um, in October, I think, of 1999, right? So she was pregnant through that entire uh, development cycle, and, our, and she was helping. She wrote the strategy guide. She <laughs> did some of the writing of the, the, the game itself. Uh, she would, she'd slept on a sleeping bag on the floor in front of my desk. Uh, it was so cool. We got to work really closely together um, on that project. Would, uh, would you guys at Gearbox today... Work do Half Life Episode Three if if Gabe or Val you know Valve called you up. I don't know. 
Or was that is that just like a pressure that what, no I don't, one should I, I don't have. know what I don't know what Half Life Two Episode Three is, so I don't know. Um, I, I don't know that that we could or should. It's a fun universe. I'd love to spend more time in it. Yeah. Um, I don't know what way that would make sense though, um, and I, I don't know. I might be alone. I, I'd have to. I mean. Well, that's why I asked there's the like question. Three, like I, there's 300 people at Gearbox. Right. I, can't, I don't can't. Because for all I know, you have this like burning idea that you're just burning to do <laughs> after having been in the Half-Life universe before. We, so I feel like we got we got done with what we wanted to do. You know, we did we did Opposing Force, we did Blue Shift, we did the PlayStation version of um, the PlayStation 2 version of Half-Life, and that yep. was a lot of fun because we got to clean up a lot of things and really tune it and kind of figure out how to make console games, which was like that. Were you guys doing the Dreamcast version that got canceled um, too, or is that somebody else? We were helping else? with helping. it. There, okay. was a, there was a group out in, San, in the Bay Area, Captivation, that was doing the heavy lifting. We did the work, like one of the biggest problems was um, a Half-Life save file was about one to two megabytes. A Dreamcast VMU was 128K. <laughs> well. And you had to have enough room for like 20 or 30 things on there, otherwise you couldn't pass cert, right? Yeah. So we had to figure out how to take a one to two gig, two megabyte file and figure out how to do 20 of them or 30 of them. And, and Steve Jones, one of our engineers, uh, solved it and he invented this brilliant like indexing concept that genius level stuff, like taking two megabytes of data and getting the same exact result out of like- Yeah, an order of magnitude less, yeah. <laughs> So uh, many orders of magnitude. <laughs> you, you guys weren't done with with contract stuff yet. We'll, we'll get to Brothers in Arms, your first original IP. Mm-hmm. You did uh, Halo One for PC, yeah, which yeah. was a big deal at the time. Yeah. Uh, I remember I worked at Official Xbox Magazine at the time, oh, yeah. and we covered it anymore in Xbox Magazine. But this is Halo yeah. coming to another platform for the first time. Yeah. Uh, so it, you did eight new maps, uh, yeah. most of which I very fondly remember. Yeah. Uh, a bunch the of them are still kind of with the product. Yeah, and Master yeah, Chief yeah, Collection, yeah. they're all there. Uh, the Flamethrower, yeah. which there had been, like, it was unfinished yeah. in yeah. Halo 1. You yeah. guys finished it and put they it in the game. Created a plasma cannon or something. So how, how was it working with Bungie <laughs> and, working, and working with Halo? I mean, to be fair, it, like, look, those guys, Bungie and Valve, they're kind of, when we were working with those guys, it's kind of like how we are sometimes when some people work with us, where we're busy. And they were busy, so it's not like... Like they just kind of like okay, here's all the stuff. Good luck. Yeah. Man. There's no manual. <laughs> there's no. There's no help desk. Like you're just on your own and you're doing the best you can to kind of interact. Like I, I, I was probably in the most fortunate seat because I got to have the direct kind of connections with some of the creatives. Like with, especially like in the Valve time, you know, getting you know sitting down with Laidlaw and talking. About, okay, let's talk fiction. Yeah. You know, and and just figure not 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 you know enough so it was constrictive, but to kind of figure out how to connect with it. And you know, same with Bungie where we kind of figured out okay, what, what's what's what are we doing here? What how are we going to connect up with this? And it was cool, man. We learned a lot. I, I think the biggest thing that, that, I mean, the engine was bizarre. It was like a totally different lane. It was like a, it was like, well, it, was, it was like it was we've been living it on was their own, yeah. their own thing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, you know, and, and these guys evolved from like Marathon was like a Mac product, right? So mm-hmm. these guys evolved from a completely different ancestor. So it was like, yeah. it was like, you know, we're 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 primates. You know, we're <laughs> Homo sapiens evolved from these this line, and, and they're sudden, aliens. Suddenly, there's this alien, <laughs> and we figure out through this accident of evolution that we're able to mate. 
<laughs> and produce a whole new kind of offspring. And that's what it felt like. We're learning how to speak an alien language. We're discovering what the aliens are all about. And it was really fascinating. And one of the things that I think was um, most... Um, that affected us the most. And by, by this point, too, it was great because we'd had all this experience with um, all the you know, quake and source technology. We had all this experience with um, epics stuff and how that was evolving. Um, and uh, uh, we, we also had some of our own technology that we were developing. And then we, as far as I know, to this day, we're the only external studio that's played with that Bungie engine. I, I'm probably wrong. Just Stub, Stubbs the Zombie is the only oh, other that's one. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the yeah. only other one. But that was Seropian. Yep. Yeah. So that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, and and so we got to see that and play with it and and add to it and uh, it taught us a lot of stuff. The thing I think was the most profound was how everything was data driven, and um, we totally different architecture, different practices, but we took that seed of thinking. It's like a way of thinking. And, um, and, it, and it changed the way we thought. And then we developed a new way of thinking that led to how we invented this technology that lets us procedurally generate all the weapons in Borderlands. Yeah. And that like, huh. like, like in, in, I know like from the outside, it seems like this massive gap, but for us, it was like Halo Borderlands. Like that, that, like the, the development string was that for us? Well, but uh, I want to get Brothers in Arms was in yeah, that mix too. So yeah. we, we kind of, which was an Unreal and was it, yeah, it was always yeah, Unreal, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But, so, see, but we had like there's different creative threads within Gearbox, sure. and, and and so yeah, so that 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 was a totally different thread. <laughs> so Border uh, Brothers in Arms yeah. rather is the is the first original it's, it's, IP that ships. And this is the this is the interesting thing. Like if you look at us from the outside perspective chronologically, it looks one way, but inside yeah. it looks a little huh. different. That is, it's, it's strange. Yeah, yeah, I would never think about it yeah, that way. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, the order in which things ship and how they appear to exist from the outside is totally different from how things are. <laughs> well, on the humor me on Brothers in Arms <laughs> Let's do for it. a Let's second. Do it. Then, so. we'll, go, we'll, we'll go with your <laughs> phenomenal game at the best. time. Yeah. Uh, and and there's really, in my opinion, there it, there hasn't been anything quite like it. Thank you. Since I mean, it's it's this very, uh, this, I mean, maybe. Full spectrum warrior kind of was sure, had some yeah. stuff, you know, the sort of strategic elements. But, but brothers in arms, it's you know, it's this it's this story driven strategy and tactics and cover cover heavy game, as opposed to the Medal of Honors and the Call of Duties at the time, which were much more running guns. So, uh, did what was the motivation behind brothers in arms, and and did it did it radically change or evolve over the course of development like had it had it started as a run and gun thing and it found its voice i'm always curious yeah, about this okay things. yeah I'll, I'll tell you yeah brothers in arms it's very dear to me i i uh in fact brothers in arms road to hill 30 was the last game where i produced and directed and creative directed the project um every everything after that point like i'm executive producing and you know maybe having a, a production role or a creative role but i'm not Basically, this is my yeah game. in the trenches. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I'm Part still in the, the phrasing, trenches, but I'm not like World War I'm not controlling in the trenches like I was on yeah. that. Like on, so, Road to Hill Thirty was the last game I directed in the purest sense of the word directed, um, and uh, it, it was where it started was back in the day, like like the path the path the Road to Hill Thirty <laughs> goes from Duke Nukem. 
Okay. To Counter Strike. To to Brothers in Arms. Huh. That's that's the that's that thread. So it's not like it's a different chronological kind of line, and um, and I don't I don't know if you know this, but we did the the yellow box with Counter Strike. Um, like we worked on we 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 worked on Counter Strike back in the day. Um, the yellow box was the first commercial. Uh, I can yeah. pick. I can yeah. see it. I can literally see it in my yeah, head. If yeah. You, if you ever find the old yellow box and flip it over, there's the gearbox logo <laughs> on the back there. Um, and then uh, you know we we did a lot of stuff that's still in the game. Um, but that, that's a tangent. Um, the uh, the so so Brothers in Arms started uh, after Duke 3D. Brian and I. Uh, Brian Martell before coming to 3D Realms worked at Microprose and he did all kinds of cool stuff there. And one of the things he worked on, aside from like civilization. <laughs> and Civ Two, like I, I re- this guy, this guy walks in the office, and George's like, "Hey, here's your new office mate. I hired him." And I'm like, "You weren't going to tell any of us? Like, we weren't part of this process." And I'm like, "And I'm being a total dick. I'm like, why? Why should you be here?" He's like, "Well, I, you know, I've worked in the industry for a little while. Oh, really? What have you done?" And like, he starts going backwards through his his history. And by the time he mentions Civilization, I'm like, um, "There's literally seven people that worked on Civ, right?" <laughs> like one of them, Sid Meier, you know, and one of them's Bruce Shelley, you know, <laughs> they're like, it's just, if you go through the credits, it's like, it's crazy. And, um, and, and Brian Martell's one of them. So anyway, so he, he's in, he, well, another game he worked on there was called Across the Rhine, which is a World War II total strategic view as, mm-hmm. as the microprose style of yeah. the time was right. Where, you know, you're 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 dealing with World War II on the level of armies or army groups, right? It's like may, maybe maybe battalion level if you're like super detailed, right. right? You know, like crazy detailed. You get battalion level, but like divisions are about where it usually stops, right? Um, and uh, uh, we're you know we're, we just finished working on the Duke stuff, and it's like you know, it's really cool to be in the perspective of the character in the game, but the problem with first-person shooters is the whole world is dead and just frozen and waiting until the hero enters the room, and then just in that room, the world wakes up, and deal and you deal with it, mm-hmm. and then but the rest of the world is just frozen and waiting for you to... You know, Duke starts to subvert that a little bit by trying to make it feel like there's other stuff going on in the universe, but for the most part, the world's just waiting for you to arrive, and, and you're the only one like it's you and against everybody, you versus the world yeah. in a first person. This is how it was, and so our idea was, our big idea was, in war, no one fights alone. And what's ironic about this, you'll notice if you look at the box on Call of Duty, the very first Call of Duty game, the subtitle is "In War, No One Fights Alone," <laughs> and there's a reason for that because the first people I pitched it to was Activision, hmm. and we called it the working title was a war game. And uh, we uh, uh, we got you know they, they, we had a contract we were working on, we we were working oh, wow. through the contract I did, we didn't execute it we were like on the fourth or fifth draft and I got sniped um, by Microsoft who was creating this new platform the Xbox and they want they wanted this this game yeah. and they they gave us a slightly better deal so we went with 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 Microsoft but but the pitch was in war no one fights alone. And we started with this. And in fact, at the very beginning, we weren't sure what war. We just knew whatever war is the coolest thing to do this in, we just want to make sure that we feel part of a unit. We feel like it's not just about you know, the, the, the big idea. It's about the guys next to us. 
Um, it's more personal, it's yeah. more human because we're first person, we're there, we're actually a person. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so, so that was the big pitch and, um, did the deal with Microsoft and got started. And, and I, I hired this guy, uh, Colonel John Antall, who is a U.S. Army Colonel. Now at the time I, he was helping us with consulting. He wasn't uh, an employee because he was still active duty. Hmm. And he wrote a stack of books taller than me about war history and tactics. I used his books at West Point. And I, I discovered him because I was watching the History Channel a lot, which back then was the World War II channel. And there was this, um, there was this plan that was being talked about that the Germans used called the Schlieffen Plan, which was like this pivot move to sweep through France. And they, they do the, you know, the map view, and then they show historical photographs, and they have a talking head like a historian with a black background going, aliens, no. And he was saying, <laughs> and he, and he was saying like, the Schlieffen plan, da, da, and the guy was super sharp and super dynamic, and he knew his shit, and he was kind of fun to listen to. And, you know, it said, uh, John F. Antall, author, historian. I'm like, I need that guy. Who's that guy? So a friend of mine up at Microsoft, uh, who's not there anymore, he's, um, he's, he's done a lot of things, but at the time, uh, this guy, Jim Vivert, um, he's like, hey, I can hunt this guy down for you. You need to talk to this guy. And he got me on the phone with him. I was like, this is the guy. So we met him and we ended up kind of working something out and he was consulting with us and he taught me like, I could teach a master's class on war history. He taught like, we went back to like the Peloponnesian War all the wow. way to modern day and then we kind of honed in on, on World War II and then we found our unit and we got really in there. And, um, uh, and I like, if you had more time, I could get in there and I could tell you all about D-Day and all about the paratroopers and how, like, you and I might be speaking German if it wasn't for this one unit. <laughs> like, it was literally, I mean, the world could be a very different place. Um, and this was inspiring. And then the other thing Colonel Antal did was he got me in the room with the actual people. Like, hmm. the, the guys that fought, that actually were there. Yeah. The actual soldiers that we were trying to tell the story about and I discovered something really quickly uh, which was that for them like because to me as I immersed myself in it it's the most impossible test in the world right think about if you're in a situation where there the other team is literally trying to kill you and you have a gun and you your job is to find a way to point it at as another human being and to pull the actual trigger and actually kill them that's your job. And it's not only your job, it's also your necessity because if you don't do your job, do they're going to do it to you. And these are the highest imaginable stakes. And it's like, it's not a video game anymore. You know, it's not this bullshit like, uh, you know, because to me, when I was playing, you know, Doom, it, it wasn't, these weren't guns. These were just icons that represented the, the system and the simulation for this, you know, the skill test, this reaction-based skill test. And when I'm talking to the veterans, it's like, this is real. This is like, holy fuck, you know? I'd never even fired a real gun until I started working on a brother's arms. Changed everything. Um, and I learned that what, what it took, what, what got these guys able to do it, had nothing to do with what I thought it was. Because I thought it was about like nationalism and like duty and honor and country and all that. And those are really lofty values. But when, when push came to shove, it was always about the guy next to him. Like they, you, pe they didn't want to let their buddies down. Yeah. They didn't want to be cowards, or they didn't. They loved. They loved their their team, and this was their family. And they and it was so fascinating. And the other thing I learned was everything that video games teach us about how guns work 
and how actual firefights work, it was complete bullshit. The reality is there are lots of bullets fired and most of them don't hit, but they're all fucking terrifying yeah. because any of them could hit. And that's what suppression is. And it taught, we learned this idea of suppression that if you just shoot in the direction of someone, a real person does not want to be exposed anymore. Um, we would, we would, whenever we brought somebody new on the team, Colonel Antal would say, you stand behind that table and you'd start throwing pens at them. <laughs> and then like they tip over the table and get behind it, like throwing big wads of pens, like office pens at them and just throwing pens and throwing pens and the pens are hitting the table and they're like hiding behind the table, not don't want to get hit by the pens. You know, these are just writing pens and, uh, oh, that's suppression. And so that's how we discovered the mechanics. So we started there. We, we, we went for that. Yeah. The fallback was if we can't figure this out, cause no one's ever done this before. We have to invent this whole, like, how do we, what's the interface for giving commands? What's the interface for ordering dudes to walk around and, and how to interact with the environment? Like everything in brothers in arms, there's a lot of games that have borrowed from that. But when we did it, there was no game to borrow from. That was the first time that, that, yeah. that, that territory had been crossed. And we didn't know if we were going to be able to figure it out or not, but we did know we had a budget and we had a schedule. And so the fallback was, okay, we'll try our damnedest. And if we can't figure out how to crack the nut, uh, well, we'll just go to run and gun. <laughs> so the fallback was run and gun, not the starting spot. Interesting. Um, but we never had, we didn't have to do the fallback. Yeah, we, we it figured worked. It out. And it did. And I was so proud of the result because it was, a, we, I had no idea. It's like every game I launch. I have no idea. Like, I think it's cool, and then we launch it and we discover what the world thinks. But we were getting better reviews than Medal of Honor and Call of Duty, and we got better sales. Uh, and I mean, we shit, I wonder if what the world would be like if we just went all in on that franchise and tried to annualize it like those guys are doing. That's not the path we chose, but. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of glad we, we kind of like inventing, you know, there'd, well, be, I, there'd be no Borderlands. Yeah, but that, Borderlands I mean, I, would not exist. I do want to ask you about, about that, though, is the. You know, after uh, I believe it was three games, there was a original Xbox sequel and then the, the mm -hmm. 360 third game. Yeah. No more Brothers in Arms. Yeah. Uh, there was a sort of a weird, well, no offense, a kind of a weird, it was uh, weird. attempt at the you know the sort of Quentin Tarantino yeah. style. Yeah. Uh, then, then which you guys walked away from that. So, uh, it, Brothers in Arms clearly near and dear to you. Yeah. Is it ever coming back? Is that what your new team in Quebec is doing? Where, what is going on with so Brothers in Arms? We are actively working on more Brothers in Arms. Um, it, you know, there's a, there's a saying in video, that suits in video game publishing say, which is, a game doesn't exist until it's announced. <laughs> <laughs> and so we haven't announced anything yet. Um, but it's no secret. I've, 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 you know, I've told fans. Um, yeah, we're working on more brothers in arms. But I want to, I want to make sure. Like right now, we're doing it totally under our own weight because we're now becoming suits. Like we're publishing now. Yep. Gearbox. We'll get to that too. Gearbox is publishing games. So one of the things that I that in the, some cases, and, and it is in the case of brothers in arms, we don't have to worry about any partners' interests. Uh, and when we do partner with people like publishing partners and we we do and and i'm grateful for the publishing partners that we've worked with and that we work with we do care about their interests a lot and um but sometimes it you know the the, the perspectives every piece has are unique to their situation you know so when it's just us then we only have to worry about our own perspective and for me it is very precious and i don't want I, it's it's hard, you know. It's been a while, and so I don't want to announce the th 
the yeah. thing until I know and am so, confident that what I'm announcing is what it'll be. That makes sense. And that what it will be will meet or exceed the expectations that have to get set. Does that mean you'll want to control it more directly or would you, would you partner with, with somebody under the, the publishing label I, and let someone else no, we're, 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 we're working on it and we will publish it um, unless we have to change the strategy. But right now that's the plan. Cool. Um, but even like everything's dynamic until we figure it out. But that, but that's, that's happening. And, and you know, that, that furious four thing, like that was really interesting. You know, there was a lot of pressure when, when we did the first game, um, you know, we, we, when, when Ed freeze left Microsoft and I bought back the rights from Microsoft, um, and that enabled me to go multi-platform with Brothers in Arms. Yep. And so I did a deal with, I, I talked to all the publishers and we got some good offers, but I did a deal with Ubisoft because they, they made it easiest for us to get a PS2 version. And PS2, turned out PS2 was won that. You know, Xbox did a great job showing yeah. up, but PS2 won. And at the end of the day, I want to entertain as many people as possible and gratify them as best as I can. And most console gamers are playing PlayStation 2. So shit. Xbox was a you know it was a bold bet, but it, Xbox One wasn't ready yet for us to be you know exclusive. So um, uh, so so we, so Ubisoft gave us that, and um, but we were kind of like we were this thing that just showed up out of nowhere for them that they didn't they didn't have to think about all they had to do was manufacture it and sell it and distribute it, and so there was just zero creative interest and they they we were so cheap. Like the cost, like all they really committed to was a publishing deal. They didn't, there was nothing really up front. They didn't have to give any money up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't, it, there, was, there was no risk in them other than like manufacturing costs on the risk. They were like, we're going to manufacture a purchase order. So it's really no risk. Right. So they didn't really have to take any risk on the first Brothers in Arms game. The risk was very small relative to the potential, but it blew up. Suddenly, oh fuck, where did this thing come from? <laughs> this is really important to our business. So it became really important to Ubisoft and you know, Ubisoft, one of the things that's great about them is they have a, a really powerful central mind. Of the editorial design. board? Yeah. You know, Serge, and his, Serge is a brilliant genius, and he and his team are great. And Eve himself gets creatively involved when things matter. Like, and, and, and so they were all up in our shit. <laughs> and I think that their vision is amazing, and I think they should absolutely do their vision, but it wasn't our vision. And it, you can feel like if you go back and look at that that Furious Four, um, it was it was perverting what Brothers yeah, and Arms, I, I what the identity it, of the right. brand was. I remember thinking, oh, this looks interesting, but this is totally not what I want out of out of a Brothers and Arms game. And I felt that way too. And it was a tough spot for me. I'll tell you, it was a really tough spot because I love those guys and they're so good, and I have a lot of trust in them. And um, I was worried about that. And I thought, to me, E three would be the test. I'm like, I will do it. I will go up there. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. I'll do my job. And we'll see what the reaction is. And what was interesting is we both, Ubisoft and Gearbox, took away different things. Right? We took away, hey, do you see? The people that love Brothers in Arms the most are saying this isn't right on tone. And they're like, yeah, but the people that we haven't talked to yet are kind of noticing this thing that looks different than they ever saw before. <laughs> and both of us were right. Yep. Yeah. But it's RIP. 
<laughs> you know, and at the end of the day, it's not going to be great unless we really believe in what we're doing. So we had to, we had to, you know, go a different way. So we, we figured it out, and Ubisoft and Gearbox are professionals, and you know, we figured out how to deal with that. And um, some of what's cool though is some of the cool gameplay that was being pioneered in what Furious Four was pitched at that evolved. And I just said, guys, keep going. Just tear the franchise out of it. Just go in whatever direction your gameplay yeah. leads you. And that's what led to Battleborn. We'll get to that, too. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so like, you've got your threads. Brothers that, in Arm yeah. goes to Battleborn. So yeah. crazy, right? Well, I want to go back to yeah. the thread. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, Borderlands. Yeah. So jumping back on, on that, uh, it was that was not the game. That, the, the shipping version of Borderlands, for sure, was very different than what it started out as because I remember that it was a, uh, if I have the story right, it, w- it was a pretty, let's just call it normal-looking Unreal Engine first-person shooter until one day uh, your, some people on your team went rogue and completely redid the art style behind your back <laughs> and, kind then, of. <laughs> and then showed it to you. Do I have the story correct? Kind of. And that is of. the Borderlands we know today. Kind of. The... Um, the there's, I always think about a game in the promise of a game in terms of story, style, and design. And uh, the design of Borderlands has been consistent from the very, that was That was what we started with. Uh, the fast-paced, fun, and moment-to-moment action of a first-person shooter. Reaction time skill tests, aiming, moving, dodging, the feedback I get when I get a hit and stuff happens. Yeah. Like, oh, so good. And blending that with the long-range, kind of addictive um, and engaging um, meta that comes from what we traditionally call role-playing games, you know, where you have leveling up and loot and all that. And up to that point, they had never crossed over. Um, only very, very lightly and only in some weird cases, right? Um, but we believe that they can be fully embedded and that they were not mutually exclusive. Um, and uh, Borderlands was the bet. Let's prove it. Let's let's. Uh, we believe this is the case, and we think if we figure it out, we'll have both moment-to-moment fun and action, and long-term engagement. And that hasn't been done before. Let's do it. Let's let's do it. And so that was the bet. It was a design bet. The story and the style followed. And when we did our first kind of concept art, we had all the like all these interesting um, art styles that we'd considered, um, including. An art style that ended up being what Brothers in Arms is, um, and I think what Borderlands is. I'm sorry, what did I say? Brothers in Arms. Thank you. It's okay. <laughs> My brain did a thing. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Did you notice that? My brain did a thing. That's cool. Um, yeah. So so. Um, uh, but um, yeah, some of the artists uh, were kind of naturally going towards realism, but the concept art we had several different treatments, and I think the first art director. This is what was interesting. The first art director, I think, wanted that more stylized kind of thing. We went, the art team went more realistic. The art director ended up quitting. Then later, when we figured out that the tone and design begged for the stylized stuff, then the artists, the, the realistic artists all quit. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. Um, but um, the, uh, what happened, the, I wouldn't exactly say go rogue. What, what, what actually went down, there was a handful of people on, our, on the team, including guys like Stephen Cole, who was a guy I used to work with at 3D Realms, and um, Carl Shedd, who's um, ironically worked on Rage. He was at Gearbox and went to Id, worked on Rage, and came back to Gearbox. So he, he shipped Borderlands, 
Went to Id, shipped Rage, <laughs> then came back, shipped Borderlands 2. He's got a wheelhouse. One guy on the planet can say that. That's Carl. <laughs> oh, actually, no, two guys, Carl and David, David Avery. <laughs> um, but Carl, Carl and Cole and Martel, they kind of, and a couple other people, um, were kind of feeling like what we were all feeling, which was the realistic art direction was fighting against the tone of the design and where the story kind of wanted to go. I mean, even, even at the beginning, like, I remember Matt Armstrong's first, like, when he was like, um, okay, he was just doing some simple, like, like surface designs, like, okay, he had his pencil, his placeholder for what the currency was going to be called that actually got written into the code. The currency was called cash money, right? That, the, the idea of, like, your, your dollars being called cash money doesn't fit with that first art direction, right? Like, so much about the gameplay yeah. just wasn't fitting with that, like, realistic, hyper-serious kind of art direction. Um, and so Brian, um, what my experience was, um, somebody, I can't remember who it was, somebody said, hey man, did you see, see the stuff that Carl's been working on? I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Isn't Carl working on what he's supposed to be working on? <laughs> you know? And uh, apparently Carl was starting to mess around with something that he was tinkering with with Brian onto the side. And Brian um, was one of the founders of Gearbox and Brian generally could give a shit about the plan. He just like whatever, whatever felt like something he wanted to touch, he would touch. And we joked, we called him an 800 pound gorilla because he would just go into a scene and, and usually like there'd be value at the end, but sometimes just knock a bunch of shit over. But always, you know, hey, this is what I think needs to happen and, you know, just get in there and do it. So he'd gone and had some, he'd talked with some of the guys and just started getting them going off on this tangent. And I went to Brian, I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you doing, man? It's like, like, here's our schedule, and like, we have a plan. And he's like, okay, here's the thing. I think I have an, I think I figured it out. I think I know how to solve the, the, the discord, the, yeah. the, 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 the um, what's the word? Dissonance between yeah. the art direction and the gameplay. And um, can you trust me? And I'm like, Dude, we are so late in development. Like, <laughs> this is crazy. We've already announced, like, the, like we're promoting the game. <laughs> we 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 made a we we had our publishing partner make a very expensive trailer that they put at the VGAs <laughs> with this whole other you know direction to it. Like, are you crazy? He's like, dude, I think I've got it. I'm like, okay, I'll give you three weeks. <laughs> can we get, and like, we'll look at we'll look at the demo. Can can you do? He's like, okay. I'll, deal so he's like okay so it wasn't exactly going rogue but it was like it could have been <laughs> yeah it, 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 it with brian it's always going rogue but it's like when i discovered it's like we have it's like is it worth doing should we look at it he didn't he didn't it wasn't right for me to look at it then but he's like give, basically the deal was give me three weeks we'll have a look and then we'll decide if we shoot it in the head or not but the problem was, you know, I have to worry about the business because sure, if we don't make more than we got, spend, you got heads to, the dream to worry ends. about. Yeah. The dream ends. We take risks. Gearbox takes crazy creative risks, but I always take them in a calculated way where even with the riskiest thing we take, if the plane crashes into a mountain, we've all got parachutes and we can get on another plane. We've got another plane. You know? <laughs> I'm not because like the, the dream is for us to keep entertaining and especially when we make mistakes. Because that, that's where the best lessons come from. Holy crap, have I profited from failure. <laughs> like that is, every failure we've had is how we get all of our best successes. So um, uh, that's, that is the, 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 the key, right? So I have to worry about it if something looks like it's going to mess up our ability to do basically what we say we're going to do. So, so 
and, and I, you know, we, we have a culture that fuels creativity and lets that happen, but we have to have some responsibility for it. So we made that deal. We found a way, you know, we got the three weeks just let it happen. And, um, I remember when I went into the conference room where they had the demo they'd created to show me what it was. And I, I, had n I literally had no idea what angle they were going to take. I knew what all the concept art pitches were at mm -hmm. the beginning, but it was like, it could be any of these six or some other crazy junk that, you know, Brian <laughs> saw, you know, I don't know. Um, and, um, and, uh, and, and I walked into the meeting thinking this sucks because I let these guys spend three weeks on this, getting even more invested. And I have, I know I have to shoot this in the head because whatever it is, it's going to be a radical, like, cost on our yeah, production. Yeah, big monkey component. wrench into the it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an art, it's gonna, at the end of the day, there's a production problem. And that's gonna rule the day. Um, I'm totally open to be as creative as possible up until the point where we go broke. <laughs> right? We can't, if we go broke trying, then it's not a try, right? You have to be able to cross a finish line or there's no, I mean, that, that's the big lesson from 3D Realms, right? If you cannot cross the finish line, you will die. We'll get to that too okay. in a second. So I walked in there thinking, I'm going to have to shoot in the head. These guys now care even more about it. But obviously I let it happen, which means there has to be some part which, you know, but to me, the odds were like, this was like a one outer. And, and hold them right. This is like this is like this is like a four percent draw here, you know, maybe two and a half percent. And uh, and then I loaded up the demo and I saw it and I'm like, holy shit! Okay, this is clearly the right answer. So I I, I knew I knew in the first fifteen seconds that visually this was the right answer, but I let him go through the whole demo because then I had to ask the question. Let's imagine for a minute that this was the right answer. <laughs> Can we do it? Can we afford to do it? Like, have we done the math yet? Have we shown our work? Can the production work out? And Steve Palmer, the senior producer, was in the room. He's like, we can do this. And I was like, holy shit, we can. And I got goosebumps. <laughs> I got goosebumps. So then, then I immediately thought, holy shit, this is exciting. We have this. And then I'm like, oh, fuck, we have a partner. <laughs> I can't just make this. I have to go. I have to go. I have to fly to San Francisco. Yeah, I have to get, go before the two K. I got to convince and... Chris Toff and the marketing <laughs> team and the sales team. I've got to. I've got to figure this out. So what I did is I spent another three weeks. Um, I we I, I directed a little. Uh, well, actually, to be fair, all I really did was talk about some tone and a couple of shots. We had some awesome guys that are great at setting up cinematics that kind of did the, the most beautiful shots. They just came up with them. I just created the, the timeline with the song. Uh, it was, a, and in fact, it's uh, the song, that that video accidentally ended up. You can find it on YouTube, but there's an unlicensed song in it. But it's not from us. It somehow ended up on the internet. Um, and it's called, uh, if you search like Greenfield's trailer, there's this old okay. song from the 1940s that my dad used to listen to this band called the Brothers Four, and he had this old vinyl album. And there's this, <laughs> and it's like this haunting, you know, green fields are gone now, parched by the sun, like all acapella with these, and and it's and it feels it felt right. So I'm like, that's the song, and I just for some reason that song came to my head. I'm like, I'm gonna cut it to the song. We're gonna edit this thing out. And I'm going to use this as my showcase piece. I'm going to take it to San Francisco. And I have, have the playable demo too. But I'm going to show them the trailer. First, I'm going to tell them the problem. Because everybody knows the problem. We're going yep. to remind ourselves of the problem. 
I'm going to show them the trailer, let them screw on the demo, and then I'll show them the math that it all works. And, uh, and I did it, and it worked, and they were on board. And I could tell they had massive fucking pucker factor, especially on the production side. <laughs> Chow, who's awesome, like he's this guy at the production side of 2K, I could tell he was like, like clenching really tight there, like he's gonna make a diamond. Um, but uh, uh, the, the, the sales and, or the, the marketing team was like, this is what we need, this is it. You know, they were really hype. And Christoph got it, and they ultimately 2K, at the end of the day, I think what they did, they went in the room, and I think what they did is said, look, at the end of the day, it's Randy's IP, it's Randy's game, he can just tell us all to fuck off. So, he clearly wants this, we either get behind him and help it happen, or we create all this friction that'll probably implode the project. So, so which one are we going to take, guys? That's one way to look at it. I, I don't know what happened in the back room, that's just the version of what happened in my, in my so, head. Yet, yes or no answer would Borderlands still be around today if it had shipped with the more realistic I have no style? idea. I wish I had an alternate universe where I could simulate <laughs> that outcome. I have no idea. Well, <laughs> what do you uh, think? What do you think? I, I, I mean, a st- there's so many reasons that games click or don't click. Yeah. Timing can be one of them. I think timing helps. Uh, Actually, timing was against us. Well, I mean, ti- <laughs> I want to talk about timing with, uh, yeah. with Battleborn, sure, too, which yeah. we'll get to that. So, but, so you know, I, I think there's a... I mean, I don't want to judge it, but I think there's a there's a at least a coin flips chance that maybe it didn't it wouldn't have made it it wouldn't have it's, resonated it's ar- with people. It's easy to argue that you know it's it's uh, easy to argue that. But one game I, that didn't I got to tell it, you though yeah one of the most frustrating things because the other thing I knew when I when I said let's go for it was this will help this will fix the dissonance, but I know it's putting a ceiling on us. I know I knew it was putting a ceiling on us because there's especially back then there's just a huge percentage of the gaming audience that does not want a cartoon. I remember they just yeah. don't want a cartoon. Yep. And I'll tell you that one of the most excruciating things for me well, like you had the last laugh on that one. Well, kind of. The ceiling's still there. We're just pushing No, it. Uh, Borderlands 2 sold pretty damn no. well. Yes, it did. <laughs> still against the ceiling on it. Like let me tell you, let me tell you the evidence. Pretty healthy ceiling. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sad. I'm not sad. But like, you know, when you when you swing for the fences, you want to think like, how do I, you know? Look, if your our mission is to entertain the world, so we are dismal failures. Borderlands is a horrific failure if we goal is to entertain the world. There are seven billion people in the world. What's twenty five million, thirty million units? That sucks. Right? Like, it's a horrible failure. Um, so um, uh, the was it the GameStop manager show. I can't remember which one, but I, I went. They, they brought me out there, and they had me signing autographs and doing the whole thing. And there were so many managers that were so excited to come up and meet me. And they, they, I, I, this is. I heard the same story, like a thousand times. Probably not. A th- I heard it several dozen times. which yeah. In that environment, feels like a thousand. And the story was this. Randy, oh my God, I love your game. I, I love it so much. I love Borderlands. I'm like, well, it's a team effort. Thank you so much. You know? And they're like, I love Borderlands so much. Um, let me tell you, you know, I work at this GameStop and blah, blah, blah. And I get customers that come in and they say, what do you got? Like, I'm looking for something. Like, you got to try this game. And they always say, I don't like games that are cartoons. I say, try it anyway. And if you don't like it, bring it back the next day. And they do. And then they love it. And they think that I like hearing the story. And I hate the story because what it means is that naturally people don't gravitate to the pitch. They have to be convinced of the pitch. And then they try it, and it's only after they try it that they get engrossed in it. Interesting. And that, that mean, that, that's, that's proof of the ceiling that I'm talking about, and I, we have to overcome that with every unit. Well, every a, game, a game that you did 
take to the finish line uh, historically, Duke Nukem Forever. Oh, I, God, I've yes. been dying to ask you about Duke Nukem okay, Forever, and I think I'm, I think it. I'm almost yeah I'm almost out of time. Well, I need a part it. two with you, okay? Because uh, we still have like present day Gearbox to get to. Or, uh, this, uh, yeah, you're gonna have to come back for a part two okay. another time. Okay. Uh, but Duke Nukem Forever. So okay. let's let's end with this. <laughs> and I know uh, your oh, that's a good your, one. Your associates outside are gonna they're, be like, like, well, what about Gearbox Publishing and all the stuff we want to talk about now? Yes, let's end with you're, Forever. You're my, I have to pick up my kid from from, I understand, uh, understand. from camp, otherwise they'll, they'll do it. throw me in jail. So let's, let's Duke Nukem Forever. <laughs> uh, what is your honest assessment of that game? How it how it shipped when you and your team I am took the worst person it. to ask okay because I worked at Three Realms I know that's why Duke, I'm curious as to your perspective and I know about an obscene amount of dysfunction that happened at Three Realms in the dozen years from when I left to when, yeah. when they went away and I, I my honest I actually I love it and and not because I think it's the greatest game ever but because my expectations when I got to experience what I experienced, when I, when I, like my situation was the, the character that I think I owe my career to, my, the first commercial sure, product I made, like on the side of the road in a horrible, horrific accident, dying, and we happened to be in the middle of the desert and there's nobody else around, and we happened to be in a fucking ambulance right there, and it's like, okay, we're gonna give the CPR, <laughs> we're gonna help it out, right? But like, I mean, George and Scott basically came for rescue. They're getting sued, they're broke. They had laid off the whole team, and they sh- George brought me over to um, George and Scott brought me over to one of the guys' houses, I think David Regal's house, and uh, showed me the game. I just couldn't even believe that. First of all, I couldn't believe that there was something there. Yeah. And then there was a lot there, and some of it was effing brilliant. Like the whole, the whole um, restaurant scene with like where you get shrunk down. Like this, I, I, like this is like. It was cool. I really, it was really fun. Like, no, you can't get away with that stuff in any other franchise on the planet. <laughs> um, the, the, this is, and this is, this is why it's, I'm the worst person to ask, right? Because the problem with Duke is it was legendary. So to the outside world, expectations were the highest possible thing. George and Scott have been promising the best game ever made for over a decade, yeah. right? I mean, the, ter- the term vaporware was created to describe Duke Nukem Forever. And Duke Nukem Forever, for 10 years in a row, got uh, uh, top billing in Wired Magazine's Vaporware of the Year Award until they decided to give it a lifetime achievement of vaporware yeah. and never talk of it again, right? Um, so the expectations the world had were here. Meanwhile, I knew how George and Scott managed things. I knew how they operated. I knew the team. I knew the people that had left that joined Gearbox. I knew the people that were still there. And I knew what was possible in that environment because I was in that environment. And so my expectations were like, you, they're below the frame of your cameras. <laughs> so my expectations were down here. So when a thing showed up that was like here, and this is where the world thinks it is, and I think it's down here, this radically exceeded my expectation. So that's why to my stupid, unobjective eyes, it was amazing. But to everyone expecting the greatest game ever, it's like it was rubbish. And there's like this penalty, right? Let, let's say the game, I don't know what the game actually is. Is it a six? Is it a seven? Let's, I don't know what the fair assessment is. Metacritic says it's like a six, I think, yeah. or five, five or six. What does it say? I don't uh, somewhere around there. It's probably yeah. around there. Um, which means half the people gave it less, a lot less, and half the people gave more to a lot more. Because um, that's the average of all the things, right? Um, I think what happens is, 
especially when it comes after a game like Borderlands. Like, you're, like the world suddenly says, oh, Gearbox is fixing things. And so you already have expectations here. And Borderlands just kind of surprised everybody and blew everybody away. And now, oh, Gearbox is taking over this legendary thing. Like, oh my God, it's going to be the... I mean, the YouTube views on the, video, on the trailer got more than the Call of Duty game that year. It's like the, like the most viewed thing in the universe of video games that year is just is a phenomenon right so there's no way it could live up so like let's say let's let's say it's a six and a half okay um i don't know what it is but let's Sounds, I, that's, I, yeah. to me it feels like an eight and a half but I, i'm obviously wrong and i'm not <laughs> objective but let's say it's a six and a half and the world wants an eight and a half that difference there they don't give it a six and a half that difference is now a penalty and some so those people give it a four and a half and that's because I, I can't imagine, and like to me, it was blabbergasting. Somebody gave it like a three or a two or something. It's like, yes. I can't imagine what that's like. I've played games that I felt like are two or threes. <laughs> did you ever? And it's not that game. Did you ever think about buying it, but then burying it forever and not oh, putting I, it out? I had no option. No, here, here, the, the situation wasn't that. So the situation was um, that game had to be delivered. So it was, my options were. In order for you to own the IP. No, just just that here's, was the here's my here's my options. Okay. Forget about like I, it's not that I took a Hippocratic oath, but I I keep driving in the ambulance and let it bleed out on the side of the road. <laughs> that was option one. Yeah. Or option two, I pull over and help it. And pulling over and helping it means Duke Nukem Forever has to ship. Take two was suing 3D Realms. I so the deal I stepped in front of the bullet. I, I went like we did a we did a hasty deal so that those guys, you know, had something, and then I flew out to 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 uh, 2K and I said, I have some crazy news for you. You're now suing me, <laughs> and we're working on Borderlands 2 together. How are we going to work this out? <laughs> and they're like, Well, you're going to deliver Duke Nukem Forever. It's like I can do it. <laughs> Here's what I need for help, but we can do it. We have the best producers in the world. There's enough there. It's it's basically assembled by the 3D Realms team. Yeah, we can we can hire an external team that can help port it to the consoles, and build a multiplayer game, and we can assemble the pieces, and and deliver it for you. And you know, it, and and I'm I'm I, I to this day I swear we have the best producers in the world because we fucking did it. You have no idea how painful that was. I mean, it's holy that's shit. A, it's a legendary it's, situation. It is legend. I, there's a we have a Guinness Book of World Records hanging on our wall for the longest game development history. <laughs> for that, like it is just insane. And uh, uh, and and I I didn't I wasn't sad because I did like it. I'm glad. I feel better about a world where we all got to see the end of that story. Me too. And that's than one where it just went away. And that's why I'll tell you, and, like I I, also, I don't think it's an eight five. It, I don't know what it is, but it, to me, as someone who's, I mean, Doom was the game that sort of changed everything for mm -hmm. me as a gamer, and I, I went, became a full PC gamer, Duke Nukem 3D, all the build engine games, all the Quake engine games, you know, that was yep. my jam. Yep. So Duke Forever, I was one of those people where it just yes. was this, this, yes. this, this yes. unicorn. Yeah. And so for me, I appreciated the fact that it was like, a playable piece of video game. Yeah, history. right. I always appreciated <laughs> yeah. it for that. My, you know, in hindsight, what I and I pitched this at once, but everybody just got the hype was so big. The sales force and the marketing team, and even at Gearbox, and I think especially with the 3D Realms guys, it just got. Maybe this will work. I don't know. But to me, the pitch should have been: it should have been twenty bucks. It should have, the package should have been wrapped in brown paper, and it should have said Duke Nukem Forever Bootleg Edition. 
<laughs> and that should have been the package. And the console version should have been like, is it faux, like brown paper, yeah. you know? And it's like, this is the thing you shouldn't even, that shouldn't even exist. But if you want to see what happened, if you want to see how it happened, here's, here it is, and it's only 20 bucks. And that, well, that would have been a play, I think, that would have changed everything. But, you know, it's not, that wasn't up to me. <laughs> the last thing, because uh, uh, we, we do have to, have to go, yeah. sadly, but... Duke begins, or the future of Duke. Will Randy Pitchford and Gearbox make another Duke Nukem I don't game know. someday? I hope so. I didn't step in front of the thing. I didn't step in front of the bullet uh, <laughs> and suck down all of the pain right. just for that to be the end of the story. Good. Um, I think, That's what I want to hear. I think we're now in a world where we can see what we can do with the character. And, you know, there's a saying that the suits have in publishing now, which is... A game doesn't exist until it's announced. <laughs> so. Well, on that note, uh, Randy Pitchford, that was that's only like half the story. There's so much more to you know get what? to. I will come back because I, I want, and, you, I want you to come we, back. We should schedule when I can because yes. I feel like these should exist together because I think if we stop there, it's, that's kind of giving Believe it a me, I wish I could stay. So let's we, do it. We've yeah. been talking for an hour and 35 Let, minutes do, already. We'll, we'll schedule something uh, right now and I'll yes. be back and we'll do the uh, so rest of it. In the meantime, uh, Randy Pitchford, CEO of Gearbox, thank you so much for telling me uh, all of your stories so far. <laughs> There's more. Uh, that was all fascinating. And for much more with the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the video games industry, stay tuned every month for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered. Attention, fans of fairy tales that are magical, hilarious, and grim. The award-winning Pinna original podcast, Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, has new episodes out now. While you've probably heard of the Brothers Grimm, you've never heard these tales told in quite this way. I'm Adam Gidwitz, best-selling and Newbery Honor author of Books for Children, and in Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, I share the real weird, grim fairy tales with real, weird, hilarious kids. In each episode, you not only get to hear a story, but you also get to enjoy this group guessing what'll happen next, cracking jokes, and sharing their own perspectives on the tales. Also, heckling me. They love to heckle me. The episodes are rated on a scale from grim to grimmer to grimmest, so there's always a great variety of tales to explore with your family. You can listen to Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest now wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow the show so you don't miss new episodes. 